0: You can turn to 1 Samuel, chapter 26. It's good to hear happy voices in the sanctuary. 1 Samuel, chapter 26. We continue our series. Through the life of David and Saul and Samuel, we'll be reading all of chapter 26. And we, in tradition here at Hope, is to stand for the reading of God's word out of honor for the speaker who is God. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? And Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David. In the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul had came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and learned that Saul had indeed come. And then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zerui, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner And the army lay around him. And then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or... He will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, "'Will you not answer, Abner?' Then Abner answered, "'Who are you who calls to the king?' And David said to Abner, "'Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord.' This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the water, jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today. I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes, illumine our minds to your word. Give us humility as we sit under the word. As we read it, may it read us. May it convict us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Show us, Father, your promises as they are fulfilled in Christ, our savior. In his name we pray. Amen. What is atheism? Atheism. It's the belief that God doesn't exist, right? And you may think we live in a day where atheism is more prevalent than ever, and atheists are more militant than ever in their atheism, their uh, belief that God doesn't exist. But if you go back hundreds of years, a couple hundred years, the late 1800s, there was a famous statement made by a German philosopher. God is dead. God is dead. The man who said that was, was Friedrich Nietzsche. And he was saying that uh, he told a parable in one of his writings where he says that. And I'll share a bit of that parable with you, this story. But what he meant by that is we've killed God. While while not believing in him anymore, we don't need him anymore. He's dead. And see, with the Enlightenment in the 1500s and 1600s and scientific advances that occurred for Nietzsche, he believed we'd entered this age of reason. We could do away with fairy tales. We could do away with these mythologies, these stories, these religions. Where we used to believe in God, God is now unbelievable, he believed. And so in this, where he said God is dead, it comes in this story that he tells of this madman who's running through the city, t- shouting every, to everybody, Where are looking for God. He says, I'm looking for God. He says, haven't you heard of that madman who was in the bright morning, lit a lantern and, and ran around the marketplace crying incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. And since many of those who did not believe in God were standing around together just then, he caused great laughter. Has he been lost then? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone to sea? Is he emigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed, one interrupting the other. And the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? he cried. I'll tell you we've killed him. You and I, we're all his murderers. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? And he continues and continues. And then he says this, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How can we console ourselves? The murderers of all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest thing the world has ever possessed has bled to death under our knives Who will wipe this blood from us? With what water could we clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What holy games will we have to invent for ourselves? Is the magnitude of this deed not too great for us? Do not ourselves have to become gods merely to appear worthy of it? So you can tell at the end of this little story he's saying he's struggling with this. He, he certainly did not believe in God. You know, in our day and age, atheists argue for the non-existence of God, but Nietzsche actually argued from atheism and then drew implications. He, he assumed God didn't exist. He was bold in that assertion. But you can tell he's struggling. Because if you don't have God, what do you have? He, inv- he sort of is the father of this, this idea called uh, nihilism. Meaning, really, nothing matters. Right? If, you, if you take God out of the picture, you take meaning out of the picture. You take purpose out of the picture. You take morals out of the picture. And so he struggled with this. How, how do we live in a world where we've rejected God? Of course, God doesn't exist. He taught. But then how do you go on? As nihilism crushes you. And so his answer was in the last sentence of what, I, what he just said. Do not ourselves have to become gods merely to appear worthy of it. God's death for Nietzsche frees us to become gods ourselves. Where we are the ones who create morality. We are the ones who tell people what's right and what's wrong. It's all subjective. It's all in our hearts. It's not No one tells us. And so he created this idea of the uh, superman or overman. That's how we overcome this. We we create this world ourselves. So when you get God out of the picture, you only have two options. Well, either he is God, and you obey him, or we become God. Those are the only two options. I go to that idea this morning because David says, Twice in this passage, in verse 10 and in verse 16, because the Lord lives. He says it twice, because the Lord lives. For David, God's existence meant everything. It changed the way he thought about things. It was the, it was the whole source of why he lived the life he lived As the Lord lives, it says, or because the Lord lives. God's existence frames our existence. It frames how we live, what we're supposed to do with our lives in submitting ourselves to him. So this morning, because the Lord lives, we're going to see three truths out of of how David, again, deals with Saul in this final engagement before they depart ways and never see each other again. Three things we see because the Lord lives. First, we can remain in the wilderness. Secondly, we can resist anxious responses. And thirdly, if we can do two things, we, something will happen. We will receive God's reward. So we'll look at those three aspects of this passage. But it's all anchored in the truth because the Lord lives. Because he exists. Because he's our God. We can remain in the wilderness. That's what we'll see first. In, in verses 1 through 5, look at that with me. It says, The Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself? So again, this happened earlier in a few chapters ago. The Ziphites rat David out. They, they know where he's hiding. They tell Saul. This is the second time this has happened. And so what does Saul do? He arises. He, he goes down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 men, way more men than what David has to seek him in the wilderness. And it says in verse 3, Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road east of Judgment. But David has spies. right? He sends, out, he sends out spies. He's able to see where Saul is. But I want to focus on what it says in verse 3, but David remained in the wilderness. You may have, as we've preached through this series, thought, It sure has taken a long time for David, the anointed one, to become king and to have a life of ease. This is taking a really long time. He's still a fugitive in Israel. He's still on the run. He's still in the wilderness. But that is often what God asks of his servants, of his people, that we're to remain in the wilderness, that we're to trust in him. Remember, God is forming David in these moments and in these years. He's forming him to be this man after God's own heart, to be this, this king that points us to Christ. But David remained in the wilderness. The question for you and I is, do we trust the God who keeps us in the wilderness? Do, you, do we trust the God? Do you trust the God who keeps us in the wilderness? If you're a believer in Jesus today, you're like David, you're anointed. You're set apart. We are anointed but without a home here. And so do we trust God enough to go through the wilderness with Him? Do we trust God like, like Job trusted God when he would lost all his children, all his possessions, had sores on his body, and he said, though He slay me, I will trust in Him. Though He slay me, though God slay me, I will trust in him. Brother and sister, when the cancer returns, when the pain doesn't let up, when the tragedy strikes, do we trust the God who keeps us in those wilderness places? When he causes us to walk through them, do we trust, do we know he's got a greater purpose as he walks with us? Because the truth is that because God lives, while passing through this world, this wilderness, the wilderness is not our home. It's not our ultimate place where we're going to stay. But what if God's plan is to keep you in that wilderness, that valley, for a lot longer than you ever thought possible? But the good news is that your current struggle, whatever you're going through, At this very moment, your current struggle is not the end of your story. It's not the end of my story. Christians have a greater hope than the condition of our bodies, than the status of our finances, than the pain in our families, the conflict in our workplaces, the strife in our world. We have a greater hope. This is not our final resting place. Psalm 23, the psalm that many people know by heart, where it pictures Jesus or God as this great shepherd who guides us, leads us beside still waters. At the end of that psalm, there's a statement that He sends His steadfast love and faithfulness to us all our days. And in, in the ESV, it says that, "Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life." That word follow, that's, a pretty, that's actually a pretty weak translation of the, of the Hebrew word. And I want to, as I understood this, I hope it helps you and transforms the way you think about that verse. Surely goodness and mercy, not follow, pursues you, hunts after you, runs after you. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue you, shall hunt you down all your days, not just follows you. Comes after you. That's that's what God's goodness and mercy will do, because He is loyal to you, because of His covenant. So remember that as you're going through that wilderness, as you're going through that valley, God's goodness and mercy hunt you down. They track you down. It doesn't just follow you; it pursues you. It hunts you. We can't easily get away from His goodness and mercy. So the challenge for us is not to dismiss God when life gets hard and stays hard. Many people have actually run away from Christian faith, run to atheism because of the state of this world, because of the suffering, because of the darkness. Many people have rejected God's existence because of what they've endured in this world. And it's true, this world is full of pain. This world is full of struggle. But God is full of promises. To be with us in the pain, to be with us, to walk with us, to give us his goodness. You see, in these circumstances, David was probably tempted to doubt, but he trusted instead. He trusted instead, and he sought out this position of where Saul was. See, in verse 4, David sent out spies learned that Saul had come indeed. And then he rose and came to the place where Saul was. Had so, so David, in the midst of this wilderness, he is being brave. He's being courageous. He is being daring, right? going after Saul in this circumstance. So that's the first thing we see is that we can remain in the wilderness. We can do this because we have God, because he lives. Let's look at the second section. From verse 6 to 16, we see the plan that David comes up with. So here, David spots out where Saul is encamped. Uh, the encampment is circled around Saul. He has a spear and a water jug next to him, and they're all sleeping. And we see later in the text in verse uh, 12 why they're sleeping such a deep sleep. God had put a deep sleep upon them. And so David goes to two men, Ahimelech and Abishai, and he asks this question, who's going to go with me down to the camp? So it's the middle of the night, right they're going under the cover of darkness. To go into the middle of the camp. And in verse 7 says, And David and Abishai went down to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at its head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And so you get this conversation now. Here you got Abishai and you got David, right? They're sneaking into this camp at night. No one can hear them, no one one knows they're there, and they have this little conversation between each other. And Abishai says to David, verse 8, God has given you this enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the ground with one stroke of the spear, and I'll not have to strike him twice. What's he saying? I'm going to get him in one hit. I won't even have to do two. I'm that strong. I'm that powerful and accurate. But what is David's response? David says to Abishai, verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, what David is doing here is he's, he's restraining himself yet again. Right? We saw this two chapters earlier in chapter 24 in the cave, where he relents from killing Saul, and, but instead takes a bit of his robe as proof that he could have killed him. Very similar story. We're getting almost a replay, but in a different context of what's happening between David and Saul. Dale Ralph Davis says, here is the same patience and restraint as in in chapter 24 in the cave. But now, with David, it's a deeper patience. It's a more informed restraint. And so I I would argue that David is showing a patience and restraint that God worked in him throughout his time in the wilderness. He had to learn this. Even last chapter with Nabal, he wanted to take Nabal out. Remember that? That Abigail stood in the way and mediated between them. But he's learning. He's growing. Each experience is adding to his wisdom. And remember, David knows that God will avenge. What happened to Nabal? Right? He was struck down by God. And so his thought is, maybe, maybe Saul will be struck down too. Maybe Saul will be struck down too. Look at verse 10. Look at, these, look at look what he says. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, option one, or his day will come to die, option two. What he means there is naturally, natural death. Option three, or he will go down into battle and perish which we know if you read ahead, that's what happens. Saul dies in battle. But notice that David had limited knowledge. He's just like us. When you're in the midst of a a crisis moment, David has limited knowledge just like us. He's thinking about the options of what God might do. right? He He didn't have this prophetic mind that said, yep, I know Saul is going to die in the battle. No, he was thinking about what God could do. He had limited knowledge, but he had creative faith. He had the faith to see that God is unlimited in what he can do. He can take out Saul now, he can take him when he's an old man, or he can take him out in battle. He could have done, God could have is limitless, he could have done anything. But he trusted in God. He knew that it's the sovereign Lord who brings deliverance to his people. One more interesting to note about, thing to note about this is that Del Ralph Davis says, Note that although David did not know how providence would work, he knew what obedience required. Did you get that? Although he didn't know what was going to happen, he knew that he was to follow the, the law of God. He knew he wasn't supposed to take out the Lord's anointed. That's what he's warning Abishai about. Look, if we take him out, you're going to be guilty. And he learned that and he remembered that from chapter 24 in the cave as well. He says, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. It's a reminder that when we are in difficult situations, when you are in a tough spot at your job, say, or uh, in a marriage, when your marriage is, is, is broken. You don't think it's going to be healed. Adultery is never on the table, right? Breaking God's law is never an option, even though you don't know how God's going to fix it. You don't know how He's going to ultimately heal this situation. Breaking His word, breaking His law will never end you up in a good place. He he knew God would deal with Saul in His own way. And so we see David gaining this wisdom, he's gaining insight. And he's doing it not on the mountaintop. He's doing it in the valley. He's doing it in the wilderness. And that is so true for a Christian, that when we are in the valleys, that is where we often get vision. I don't know if you're familiar with the Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision. You should go pick it up if you don't have one. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's written by a collection of Puritan prayers, And it's based off this idea that when we are at our lowest point, most dependent upon God, that is where we get the most insight from Him as we cry out to Him in prayer. And one of these beautiful prayers that they offer, I'll, I'll read a section from it. Just a beautiful... First of all, these prayers help your prayer life, so you can read these prayers and make them your own. It's helped my own prayer life. Hear here, here how they write. Lord High and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights, hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is. Is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? We need to be reminded of that. Almost everybody I know says that they grew most in their Christian walk in the valley. When things were most bleak, that's where God shows up. And so David has gained this, I'll call it a non-anxious kind of presence in the midst of this anxious, arrogant Abishai who wants to strike down Saul. David says, no, I'm not here. we're not here to do that. Heard one pastor say, I bet Abishai really regretted going on this secret mission, thinking he was going to get to kill Saul, but all he gets to take back is a spear and a jug of water back to the camp. But where Abishai is impulsive and arrogant, David is discerning and humble. But think of a different context in Scripture. It's not, this situation doesn't always apply, where you don't go through, And act. Sometimes we're called to act and to be brave and to do something that makes our life uh, very risky. It takes faith to wait on God's timing, but it also takes faith to take action where action is needed. Here I'm thinking of the faith of Esther and Mordecai. If you remember in the book of Esther, when they are under Persian rule, living in Persia, and there's this Persian Haman who's plotting to kill all the Jews. And do you remember Mordecai's words to Esther? He says, through through another letter carrier, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. But who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She was in this perfect position. To help her people out. And go to the king directly. And she does it. She says, go gather the Jews. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days. I and my young women will fast as well. we'll go, I'll go to the king. Even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What great faith. What great courage. As this, as this young woman was in this position to help. But She was prayerful. And brave that's the way we're supposed to be when god puts us in a position to 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 help people where to do it and so we're not to live this life in this 21st century life we're not to live according to our subjective rediscovery of morals and according to what we think is right or wrong that's the way the culture's going for sure so we're not to be like Nietzsche's Superman, where we, where we figure it all out on our own. We create this new morality. But instead, we hear God's commands. We hear his word and his commandments. As we sing in another hymn, his commandments become our happy choice. Stats, st- statistics are showing that anxiety and depression are skyrocketing amongst especially millennials and Generation Z. So, so younger people. My, I would say my generation and younger. Why? Well, you could argue it's social media, it's the smartphones, and those certainly play a role. But it's also, I believe, we're seeing the fruit of decades of telling kids that they can create their own purpose and meaning in life. That, that it all depends on them to create their identity, to create their purpose and meaning. Brothers and sisters, that's too heavy a burden to bear. It's too heavy. This is the fruit of an atheistic worldview. But when we live under the God who lives, when we live under his truth, his ultimate truth, where he tells us what is right and what is wrong and how we are to be saved, we find purpose and meaning that calms our anxious hearts. That's what people need. That's what people need. And so here we see David exuding that non-anxious presence and resisting Abishai's advice. The third section of this chapter, we're going to look at starting at verse 17. We're skipping over briefly the part where David calls out to Abner. He tells him, what you've done is not good. You've been asleep the whole time. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, Abner. And now we get the final conversation between Saul and David. The last conversation they'll have before Saul's death. Is this your voice, my son, David? David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. Verse 18, and he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? They've had this conversation actually numerous times in First Samuel. David tells him, look, I've done nothing against you to hurt you. Continuing down, he says in verse 23, the Lord... Talking to t- t- David talking to Saul, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. What he's saying is, I've been faithful to God, and he gave me a reward, which is having you in my presence, where I could have taken you out, but that would have been against the Lord's will. So I didn't do it. But it's interesting he says reward, isn't it? The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness. How do we think about rewards from God and God giving us things? Well, the truth is that we will all receive a reward for how we've lived. You and I both. And you can think of that word reward in two ways. The first is really uh, like a payment meaning you get something, wages, in return for what you've done. And you can think of that in the terms of a negative idea, that that we all deserve payment, a penalty, wages for what we've done in this life. That none of us are good. None of us deserve good things from God. I read this earlier in in the service, Romans 6, for the wages of sin, the reward of sin is death. But you can also think of a reward as a gift, something given to you. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we all deserve a payment of death for what we've done. None of us will receive heaven as a reward on our own, based on our own record. God will not reward us with heaven for our righteousness. We don't have it. We don't have enough. Nothing that you do in your life will outweigh breaking God's commandments, which we've all done. We must have another's righteousness to enter into glory because we have none on our own. The only way David or you or me receive heaven is through the one man who David points to. David is a great example of faith, but he's not perfect. He's not what you need. We know this because we know David will fail. In the next chapter, he lacks courage, and he runs to the Philistines for support. And in the next book, in 2 Samuel, he lacks self-control when he's in view of a bathing beauty. In 2 Samuel 11, he fails. He's not the one we put our trust in. It's only Jesus who's rewarded for his faithfulness in the wilderness that led him to the cross. And you will too if you trust in him. In Christ, we're rewarded for Christ's obedience. You know, in a, in a, in a slight kind of strange way, Nietzsche was right that God did die. But we didn't kill God. Romans killed Jesus. In the first century, the Jews and the Romans put him to death. Although we're, because of our sin, liable for his death as well. But here's the difference that Nietzsche forgot and rejected. Jesus didn't stay dead. God didn't stay dead. He rose and he lives. You know, Nietzsche died in a state of insanity at the end of his life. The reasons are mixed as to what what it all came down to. But I would argue his lack of moral absolutes certainly didn't do him any favors. You end up going insane when you have no purpose or when you're the one who has to manufacture purpose in your life and meaning in your life. And so the rewards we get in this life, as we walk with Christ, as we walk with our Savior who saved us, not on the basis of anything we've done, the other gifts we get, the other rewards we get, is that we have a God in his word who who guides us. Charles Spurgeon said, walk with God and you cannot mistake the road. You have infallible wisdom to direct you, permanent love to comfort you, and eternal power to defend you. Let me say that again. You have infallible wisdom in God's word to direct you, permanent love to comfort you, and eternal power to defend you. It's an amazing gift. That we get God Himself, thou mine inheritance, now in all ways. God will reward us with guiding us through His Word. This, this is the is a huge gift that you get to open up every day and hear God's word speak to you, and know that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We leave you with this last question. Ask yourself this morning, because God lives, how is my life going to change? Because God lives, how will my life change? Let's pray. Father, we're amazed that you've given us so much that we so often don't take advantage of. Um, many times in the wilderness, we are tempted to forget. And to run to idols, to run to things we think will comfort us but don't. And we tell ourselves and we believe the lies of the evil one. That did God really say? The first lie that was told in the garden. Well, here we have in your word that God lives. The tomb is empty. May we be forever changed as we walk that journey together as your church, as your bride. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.